Kids, your word for the day is glory, not, suppo- not surprisingly. A lot of glories in this one. So um, if you're visiting with us and you have kids in here with you, we just give them a word of the day for you to discuss uh, maybe tonight before bed. Why did, why did Robert choose the word glory? What was the sermon about? And uh, you can write down um, how many times I say the word glory. And we've got a scorekeeper. The scorekeeper this week is our director of youth ministries, Mr. Mac Holt. Mac, would you please stand? There's Mac and his lovely wife, Jess. Jess, would you please stand? Jess and Bear, their new baby, Bear. Mac and Jess are beloved members of our church. Uh, Mac grew up here. He directs our student ministries. You need to know this family, particularly if you have children. That's why they're so good and are coming up. Talk to him about uh, student ministries. If you know anybody um, that has high school students or middle school students, he'd love to meet them. Um, He'll be in the back with a total afterwards. The word is glory. I will accept uh, Gloria today. We'll we'll do the Latin as well because I'm going to use that a lot. You got it? All right, no arguing with Matt, kids. All right. Today's Reformation Sunday. Protestant church um, celebrates what happened in the 16th century, this revival that we call the Reformation. When we think about the Reformation, we typically think about Martin Luther and his 95 theses that he nailed to uh, the church door in Wittenberg. Um, which was a protest against the way the gospel was being preached and, um, and embraced in that day. Martin Luther brought the church back to the purity of the gospel of justification by faith alone, through grace alone. But the Reformation was about more than just recapturing the gospel It was about recapturing something even bigger than the gospel. The glory of the God of the gospel. When you read the reformers, Luther, Calvin, Knox, you will see that behind all of their efforts was a singular, captivating passion for God's glory. That is to say, they were so fervent for these other solas of the Reformation. The Reformation has five solas, right? Sola Scriptura, um, Fide, Gratia, Christus, Scripture alone, Grace alone, Faith alone, Christ alone. They were so passionate about these solas because they were so fervent for soli Deo Gloria, the glory of God alone. This was the, the battle cry of the Reformation. This was the heart of the Reformation. In a sense, the Reformation was a reorientation. What had happened is that man, not God, had become the center of Christian religion. The Pope's authority had superseded the authority of God's word. Man's ability to save himself through penitence and indulgences had superseded God's ability to save through grace and faith in Christ. And a Christianity based upon man's authority and man's ability becomes a religion unto man's glory. And that simply would not do for these reformers who burned with a 
just unquenchable love for God and his glory. And so the five solas that came out of the Reformation, out of all of them, soli deo gloria was the motivation and application of the entire movement. So the Reformation was a reorientation away from a man-centered view of things to a God-centered view of things. And I wonder if we need a similar Reformation this morning. Not necessarily of the church per se, though certainly this does have implications for it, but I would say of our culture at large. We live in strange times. Man's own self-obsession, man's own self-centeredness has always been around since the fall of man. It is, in fact, the fundamental fallacy of the fall of man. Before the fall, before sin, man recognized what is true. God is at the center of all existence, and all existence exists for his glory. But the fall distorted our view through the lens of this sinful nature, which actually has the audacity to believe that I am at the center of all things, that all things exist for me. That that wrongful assumption, that wrong worldview is true of every sinner in every culture throughout all of history. But there is something unique about the days we are living in. We have built a culture and a worldview that feeds and reinforces that lie of the fall. That actually tells you the pathway to happiness and peace and contentment and joy and all of these things that the human heart longs for. The, the current secular postmodern worldview tells you the pathway to finding all that is to believe the lie that it's all about you. To give in to this self-indulgent, self-centered lie that it's all about you. This is the air we breathe in our culture. Our office, the TCPC office, has, uh, this week we, we've, been, we've been laughing and telling jokes about the office, the, the, the sitcom The Office. It's, uh, if you don't know what that sitcom is, if you don't know The Office, I'm sorry, uh, your life is incomplete, but... Um, Go watch it. And if you, uh, if you don't think it's funny, we might have to talk church discipline. Uh, it's, 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 it's that hysterical. So Mark is re- re-watching all the Office episodes, so he's kind of gotten us going with the Office again. And, um, and the big joke is who each character is in the Office. You know, we're trying to, like, line up our Office with their Office. And there's, the big debate is whether he's Michael Scott or I'm Michael Scott. Um, I don't want to be Michael Scott. He doesn't want to be Michael Scott. And so we're trying to hand that off to each other. And the Office thinks... Our office thinks he's Michael Scott, but they're wrong. I'm, or I'm Michael Scott, they're wrong. He's Michael Scott. Anyway, Michael Scott is having a bad day in this office episode that I thought of um, when I was thinking about this text and the man-centeredness. And one of my favorite Michael Scott moments and quotes uh, was, was uh, he was having a bad day and the whole office had turned against him. And he goes out to a park all by himself and he's sitting there swinging on a swing and doing kind of the dramatic, self-pitying thing that only Michael Scott can do. And he, and he says this, he looks at the camera and he says this. You know, sometimes to get perspective, I like to think about a spaceman on a star incredibly far away. And our problems don't matter to him because we are just a distant, tiny point of light. But the spaceman feels sorry for me 
because he has an incredibly powerful telescope and he's looking at my face all the time. (laughs) And he's saying to me, I see you and you're okay. And we laugh, but the brilliance of comedy is this prophetic nature. It, It makes fun of what we know is true. And what we know is true is that we live in the most incredibly self obsessed, self centered time where we think it's all about us. We think this vast universe is all about that infinitesimally small, tiny blue dot, as Carl Sagan famously labeled the earth. But not just the tiny blue dot. I believe and, and live as though my little tiny blink of existence upon that tiny little dot is actually at the center of the ever-expanding universe and existence. It's insane how, how highly we think of ourselves. And even more insane is a cultural worldview that tells me I'm right to think of myself as such. That it is all about me. And I should live my life as though it's all about me. And then comes a five-century-old creed in protest to that, saying, no, 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 soli deo gloria. God's glory alone. It says the opposite to me and to you this morning. It says that the reason the universe is incomprehensibly vast and we are this infinitesimal dot within is because creation is designed to display the glory of God, not man. It's designed to show forth how big and glorious God is and how small we are in comparison to his glory. And this theme of God's glory above all else is what we see Jesus pray about this morning. I want to answer two simple questions from these five verses. What does Jesus want most of all? So we're going to look at his prayer and ask the question, what does Jesus want? Because we get it in his prayer. He gets praying. He's praying for himself. So what do you want, Jesus? What does Jesus want most of all? And then by application, what do you want most of all? Let's look at Jesus. Verse 1. When Jesus spoke in these words, meaning he's done talking to his disciples, the words of the disciples are over He lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. What does Jesus want? Jesus wants glory. This might be one of the most concise and clearest proof texts that God does in fact do all things for his own glory. We are literally eavesdropping on a Trinity conversation. And the discussion of God is all about God's love for himself. Isn't that amazing? You glorify me so that I can glorify you, Father. Skip verses 2 and 3. We're going to come back to those in our next point. But look at verses 4 and 5 where he repeats himself only with more detail. So the way his prayer is for himself, he he bookends it with this request for his glory and God's glory and all that. Look at verse 4. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. 
And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus saying, I've glorified you, Father, by doing exactly what you called me to do. And now, Father, you glorify me. And this is how he, um, this is how he uh, describes what it would look like for the Father to glorify him. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You know what he's asking for there? Restore me, Father, to my original glory. Jesus laid aside his glory in the incarnation. And he is saying, I've done what you asked me to do in the incarnation. Now, glorify me by restoring me back to my former glory that was eternally mine before even the existence of the world. Give me back that eternal glory. Here's the greater point here. Without getting lost and we can get lost forever in the details of Trinity mystery in, in, in this prayer. But let's just look at the greater point. The greater point is this. God is singularly obsessed with his own glory. When Jesus talks to the Father, it's all about God's glory. When Jesus makes a request of the Father, when Jesus asks the Father for something, his request is for his own glory. The Father glorifying the Son, the Son glorifying the Father. God desires, seeks, acts above all else, soli Deo Gloria. Again, this is fundamental to what the reformers sought to recapture. A God who is God-centered. And like I said before, perhaps it needs to be recaptured again for us. In our therapeutic, self-esteem, self-obsessed, Self-help, man-centered, individualized culture. Perhaps a glorious God who does all things for his own glory sounds strange to you. Particularly if you are not used to reformed theology and reformed thought, perhaps this vision of God seems incredibly strange. Perhaps you are used to the idea of a God who has been crafted to fit within um, your man-centered worldview. A God who exists to meet your needs and the thought of a God who is centered upon himself, not you, is peculiar at best, maybe offensive at worst. Maybe it's downright offensive for you to hear me say that God is obsessed with himself more than you. Well, we have to fight to see things differently, people. We must fight to abandon the perspective that comes natural to us with us at the center of all things. And we must instead fight to view things the way the Bible view things, views things with God as the center of all things. Which is right and necessary if God is to be God. It is wrong for me to do all things for my glory. Soli, Robert, Gloria is evil and if I prayed this prayer it would be as insane as it is evil 
Father, the time has come. Glorify me. Could you imagine if I started my sermon that way? It's time. Father, glorify me. Our elders would say, it's time. Robert, you're fired. But Jesus has no problem praying this. No problem whatsoever. Why? Because seeking one's glory is right for Jesus and wrong for me. God is the one existence where self-promotion and self-exaltation and self-worship is virtuous. Where it is right and just to put yourself first and foremost. Or I'll state it negatively. To not put himself first would be wrong of God. To love anything or anyone more than God is wrong. We call it idolatry. Well, likewise, for God to love anything or anyone more than God would be idolatrous. When you're God, self-exaltation is not idolatrous, it's virtuous. So he can and he must be for his own glory above everything, even above you. He must put himself first. I love the, the uh, local uh, sports league that Centenary puts on here. We, we just finished up our soccer season that I coached, the six-year-olds. We won, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> but the league is called I Am Third. What a, great league, what a great name to disciple this generation in. I Am Third, God First. Other second, your third. If God were to play in a soccer league, it would necessarily be, I am first. It would be wrong for him to say, I am third. He is first in his own heart, his own passions, his own desires, his own actions. What does Jesus pray? What does Jesus want more than anything else? He wants the battle cry of the Reformation solely, Deo Gloria. Now, what does that do with us? Our second question will move us to application. What does Jesus want most of all? God's glory. What should you want most of all? What do you want most of all? Return to his request in verse 1, and now watch its connection to verse 2. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Now he's going to... He's going to defend it. He's going to explain why he's asking this request. Since or because, this is the, he's building a case for his request. Glorify me since you have given me authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. You know what he's saying there? Glorify me because I have glorified you by perfectly doing what you called me to do. Glorify me because you gave me authority to grant eternal life. That's what the Father sent Jesus to do, to grant eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So he's saying, glorify me because I've done, I've glorified you by doing what you called me to do. Make eternal life possible. Grant eternal life. But here is what is important for us this morning. What is eternal life? 
We tend to view eternal life again as something that is all about us. It is this eternal state of us forever getting what we want. In this way, we we have turned heaven into a man-centered existence. Where we get to go somewhere, where we still get to be at the center of all things and get whatever we want. Well, it's true that you will get all that you want. But not true in the way you think of it. It is true that we will eternally get what we want, but what we want will be transformed into what Jesus wants, God's glory. Eternal life is the return of a God-centered existence. That's how Jesus describes it in verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. Eternal life is the knowledge of the glory of God. It's a direct quote. When it describes the new heavens and the new earth, it's, it is that the, glor- the knowledge of the glory of God will fill this earth as the waters cover the sea. Eternal life is knowledge of the glory of God. But knowledge, not as we define it, but as the Bible defines it. We think of knowledge as cognitive information. But the Bible speaks of knowledge as a deep, intimate, mind, body, soul experience of something. For example, a quote, Adam knew Eve and she conceived. I don't have to tell you that a knowledge of Eve has to go beyond knowing facts about Eve for Eve to conceive. When the Bible speaks of knowledge, it is a deep, intimate, all of us experience of something. And this is eternal life, knowledge of the glory of the one true God. The Reformation recovered for us the idea that all of salvation was unto the glory of God. But what if also the reward of salvation is the glory of God? God saves us for his own glory, and the reward of that salvation is his own glory. He is both the means and the end. That's how Jesus views eternal life. Joining God in the knowledge of the glory of God. Joining God in God's love for God's glory. What is heaven? We get what we want. But what we will all want is soli deo gloria. So here's the application question for us. It's clear from this prayer what Jesus wants most of all for himself, God's glory. What do you want most of all? And since we're talking about Jesus' prayer, we, we could go to our prayers to answer that question. Our prayers are a really good place to identify what we want. When Jesus prays, his request is God's glory. When I pray, what is my request? Is it for that which glorifies God? Salvation of the loss. Um, justice in this cruel world. My own repentance of sin. Um, strength to be bold. Um, compassion and kindness to love. Love for enemies, great commission, gospel going forth, unreached people, persecutors. 
these things that glorify God? Or is my prayer life a manifestation of my own self-centered obsession, asking God to essentially change circumstances to revolve around my own wants and desires, to give me this little mini-world where I'm at the center? Perhaps nothing reveals what we want more than what we pray for. But beyond prayers, look at your life. If we evaluate your life, what do you want? What do you ultimately want? When you look at the life of Jesus, it was clear what he wanted. (laughs) The glory of God alone. If we look at our our lives, what do we want? I'll tell you where that is most clearly displayed. Your money. There is a reason why Jesus talks about money more than anything else. And it's not even close. The reason is because it's the surest indication of what you want. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Translation, our money follows our wants. So here's the scary challenge, maybe. Get out last month's statement and ask the question, what does this tell me I want more than anything else? That's not to say that when you look at your money, you can't be spending things on like mortgages or food or basic necessities or even entertainment. All of those things can be done to the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So it's not just that you can't spend it on these things. What you're looking for is preeminence. You know you have a problem if there's something that's holding preeminence upon your finances. So what is preeminent is what you want the most. So if your mortgage dominates your finances, then what you want the most is a nice house that you probably can't afford. If savings and investments dominate your finances, then what you want the most is security and wealth. If, if food and entertainment and trips and vacations dominate your finances, then what you want the most is a good time. You get the point. If we look at our money, what is preeminent? There you will find your treasure and what you want the most. You could apply that same text to your conversations. What you talk about the most is what you want the most. You could apply it to your thought life. What you think about the most is what you want the most. You could, you could apply it to your private life. What you do the most when nobody is watching is what you want the most. And on and on the evaluation can go. But the point is this. We see in this prayer what Jesus wants most of all. What do you want most of all? Seriously, what do you want? Look at it. And if it convicts, it convicts. And if you don't want Jesus most of all, and you look at it and you say, you know, I I don't want the glory of God. The the thought of me living my life for the glory of God and not myself, that is not a life I want to live. Okay, I understand that. That's what we all tend to believe. My follow-up would be, how is it going for this self-obsessed, self-centered world of yours. How's that working out? Does it ever work to live for yourself? It's never worked for me. I've never seen it work in all the pastoral ministry. 
It's what you want, but it's not what you need. What you need is to repent of this self-centered nonsense and to live your life for the glory for which you were made, the glory of God. What do you want the most? Now, here's the problem for those of us who do love the glory of God and want to live our lives for the glory of God. But when we look at our finances, we look at our prayer life, and we look at our conversations, what we see is, ah, it doesn't look like that. Well, here we're confronted with a problem. Our conviction is confronted with a problem. We are convicted by what we want, and you want to change what you want, but how? That's the biggest problem, right? Anytime you get into the area of once, you get into something that you cannot control. God is worthy of all glory. The Christian says, yes, amen. It is right to give him all glory. The Christian says, yes, amen. We should and must live our lives for his glory. The the Christian says, yes, amen. But do we actually want to give him the glory that he deserves? Now we struggle. Here's the good news. God has done something glorious to stir our wants for his glory. God could and even should be a distant God enjoying his own glory and demanding glory from his distant creation of his. Where he just says, give me glory, it's your duty. I'm your maker. But instead... He has chosen a way where giving him glory has moved from duty to delight. Return to verse 1, and then we'll be done. He says, the hour has come. Glorify the Son. The hour of my glory has come. It's time for you to glorify me. What might you imagine that hour to look like? Conventional wisdom would be the hour of triumph, the hour of majesty, exaltation, splendor, whatever other superlative we might come up with. But that's the opposite of the hour. The hour that has come is the hour of defeat, of shame, of pain of dishonor and whatever other disgrace we might come up with. The hour that has come is destined to be the lowliest hour, but Jesus sees it as the greatest hour of his glory. Why? Because the God who does all things for his own glory has chosen his grace, his love, his mercy, his sacrifice, his cross to be the fullest expression of his glory. What makes him so glorious is that in Jesus, he sets aside glory to save those who are against his glory. Return to that funny Michael Scott quote where he says what we all think in our man-centeredness. You know, sometimes to get perspective, I like to think about a spaceman on the star incredibly far away and our problems don't matter to him because we are just a distant tiny point of light. But the spaceman feels sorry for me. He sees me. He's telling me, I see you and it's okay. You know what? Replace spaceman with God and you have the scandal of this crazy gospel we believe. 
that the universe, the one who runs the universe for his own glory numbers the hairs of my head. The reason the universe is incomprehensibly vast and we are but an infinitesimal dot within is because creation is designed to display the glory of God, not man. And yet the greatest glory of God is that he died to save the infinitesimal dot. And so this is what happens in the gospel. He is no longer this transcendent God obsessed with his glory, demanding us to exist for his glory. He is a humble God who lays aside his glory to woo us, to to love us, to entice us, to captivate us, to capture us by his grace so that our want becomes giving him glory. So in love, so captured, all we want to do is glorify the God we love. Those are two different ways for a God to seek his own glory from us. There are two different ways. To demand it from afar or to gain it from the cross. And our God has chosen the latter. Isn't he glorious? Don't you love him? Don't you want him more than anything else? Good. Go get what you want. Live for what you want, which is exactly what Jesus wants. Let me pray. Lord, we want you. Help us want you more. Use this sacrament to stir affection, to live in every way, in every area, for you and your glory above all else. Forgive us for our self-centeredness. Take our eyes off of ourselves and place them upon you, our glorious God for whom we were made. In Jesus' name, amen.